Hello and welcome to Food Focus, a platform providing an opportunity for conversations and perspectives on issues of interest in the food system. My name is Mike von Massow. I'm a faculty member in Food, Agricultural and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph and the OAC Chair in Food Systems Leadership. My objective is to discuss, challenge, and learn about topical issues related to food in a way that is accessible to a broad audience. Today, my conversation that follows is with Liam Kelly, who's a PhD student in our department, who has written about cannabis regulation. The introduction of legal cannabis into the Canadian market provides clear opportunities for the food industry and for food service, but also significant risks and uncertainties and in our conversation, we try to cover many of these as we think about the coming regulation for cannabis and what some of the challenges and opportunities are. This is a brand new experience for Canada, and I think that you'll find our conversation interesting. Well, welcome. I'm looking forward to our conversation. It's not sort of something that everyone thinks about when, when we start talking about food, but you and I have talked about before we were recording that cannabis is really going to be a relatively big deal for the food industry. Yeah, I think so. I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the existing food industry over the next couple of years because of cannabis. I mean, I think cannabis will change more than just the food industry, but the implications because of edible cannabis products will have an impact on drinks and restaurants, tourism, snack foods. We're going to see a lot of changes. A lot of this is going to depend on exactly what the government regulates in the coming months and years. Uh, but opportunities are, are bountiful, that is for sure. So how big a deal is cannabis going to be basically anyway? You know, it's been legal for a little while now, and I have seen no evidence of uh, reefer madness, the fraying of the fiber of society at all. But I frankly haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of use either. And so is this going to be a big deal or was this all much ado about nothing? I think it will be a big deal. I mean, I think in, in some ways the last two months since legalization have been maybe less eventful than people were expecting. I think, like you said, I think people expected to see, you know, promenades of, you know, potheads down Main Street kind of a thing. And in a lot of ways, nothing has changed. But in general, from an economic and social standpoint, this will be a big deal. In a recent report from Deloitte, they've put the market at about $7 billion. Uh, this does include illegal and medical sales currently. So this is the entire market for the country. And so the actual size in terms of profit and opportunities will depend a bit on how able we are to weed out the illegal market. Um, but there's profitable opportunities both in medical and non-medical. And you're looking at probably four or five billion dollars in the first year of legalization of economic activity in terms of sales. So that's a pretty big deal. That's, a, that's um, nice revenues for the, for the, for the, for the government. And for that's, the first year. Yeah. And there's likely to be very substantial growth potential over the next decade or so as new products are created. And, and as well as new people decide to maybe try the products that maybe traditionally haven't accessed via the black market. Yeah. So, so it's not just people switching from their dealer on the street corner in mom's basement or wherever. It is actually new people who said, I wasn't interested in it when I was a black market, but I'm curious about it now. Absolutely. Uh, they've actually argued, and it, you know, it's hard to know how accurate this is, but the government has argued that uh, regular habitual users that were accessing cannabis via the black market 
are not likely to be the main consumers of legal cannabis, especially not at first. Uh, the big attraction will be for people that haven't traditionally consumed or have maybe irregularly consumed, you know, here and there. Yeah. That's going to be the big thing because uh, being able to purchase in a storefront a uh, atmosphere or online is a completely different experience and is likely to entice a lot more people to try it than, you know, buying it from someone's basement or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so, sorry to jump back. I just wanted, you said, you know, it, it's going to be, I think you said in the neighborhood of six or seven billion dollars a year in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. In the context, to, to give us some comparison, that is a, you know, a similar in size to wine or beer or? Yeah, so uh, currently, uh, I think about 2016, the wine industry was about seven billion dollars. So that puts the cannabis market at about the same size. Uh, the beer market was a little bit bigger at about nine billion. Uh, so, you know, kind of puts cannabis right in the same market as the beer and wine industry separately. But again, probably a lot more growth in a brand new product like cannabis versus the well-established markets of beer and wine, where we can only expect sort of moderate growth over time. So in, in the context of that, people are worried about smoking. It's much more difficult to be discreet when you're smoking. Yes. In other markets that have legalized, how big a deal is is edibles versus other forms of cannabis? So uh, it sort of changes over time. Uh, the, the best examples we have to compare are uh, the United States, the, the states of Colorado, uh, Washington State, and Oregon State. Those are sort of the three classic examples. Uh, California is a bit of an outlier, and some of the other ones are more recent adoptees, such as Michigan that just adopted a few weeks ago. So uh, in Colorado and, and uh, Oregon and Washington and things, we saw edibles come in at sort of only 5-10% when that started. Some of that was due to potentially supply chain issues, that there wasn't uh, availability of these products. And also in some cases, similar to Canada, edibles weren't initially offered. It was sort of traditional flour. Yeah. Um, but over time, edibles have reached sort of about a third of the market down in the those U.S. states. We expect to see pretty similar behavior in Canada, sort of. 30 to 35% of the total market will be focused on edibles. Um, this is, uh, you know, this will change state to state, region to region, uh, but that seems to be about the norm. Uh, in the same Deloitte report, they asked current, and this was prior to legalization, they asked current users as well as likely users, and it was about 60% of them that said that they were definitely going to be consuming edibles. You know, I think that's probably even underestimating it because there's some lack of awareness of edibles mm -hmm. because edibles aren't overly available in the black market, or at least yeah. traditionally they haven't been. They, they tend to be produced by companies and medical companies and things, so you can't just buy that from some guy's basement. <laughs> now, let's focus in on, on edibles. I'm a food processor or I'm a beverage processor. What am I thinking about? What am I worried about? What am I excited about as we sort of explore this new frontier of, of cannabis edibles. So this, uh, from, from the food processor's standpoint or a food firm, they've got a lot of things to be concerned about, also to be excited about. But I think the first thing is that, uh, as a lot of listeners will be aware, edibles are not currently legal in Canada. And they haven't actually released exactly what those regulations are going to look like or when edibles will be legalized. They have indicated edibles will be incorporated into the legal framework, but we don't know when and we don't know how. So for a firm that's interested in maybe getting into this market, they have to deal with a lot of uncertainty over the coming months of 
you know, what types of processes will be allowed, what products will be allowed, you know, can cannabis derivatives be mixed with alcohol or, you know, where can they be sold? And so it's really hard to make a proper estimate on, you know, the profitability of these opportunities without knowing how it'll be regulated. Another issue, and this is actually the primary reason why the government has held back on legalizing edibles, is uh, dosage. Uh, we don't yet know a lot about the effects of cannabis and, and sort of the factors that may limit its effectiveness. For example, you know, how much you've eaten that day, how tired you are. We don't know exactly what, how those influence uh, the effect of cannabis. And is, Sorry to interrupt, but isn't that true for smoking as well? Or is it is it it's, even more difficult? It's more it? substantial for edibles. Okay. Um, part of this is the time delay. So if you're yeah. smoking you know, a matter of seconds or minutes at the most, you've, you felt the effect. Uh, and usually the idea would be that, you know, the effects would sort of be substantial enough that you would want to stop. Yeah. Whereas with edibles, especially when they come in an enticing form, such as a, like a gummy bear or a chocolate or a chip or something, it may take 30 minutes to a couple of hours to really hit the peak effect. And so you could have someone sit down, eat a whole bag of candies like they're, you know, normal, non-infused Like they're gummy bears. Exactly. <laughs> and find themselves in a very uncomfortable position a couple yeah. of hours in. Yeah. Uh, and to be clear, so far there's no risk of, of death or, or toxicity, but discomfort is something still to be considered and it could result in nausea, vomiting, you know, those kinds of things. And, and I think that <clears throat> leads to another concern for these firms is that, you know, there could be some bad publicity with cannabis or some bad outcomes. And Food companies have traditionally been sort of very wholesome, family-friendly companies. They would be dipping their toe in a fairly different uh, market, one that potentially could have negative effects and harmful effects. And so that's going to, you know, we'll, it's yet to be seen what firms will be willing to take that risk and jump in the cannabis market and others that maybe would prefer to stay out. And, and it's interesting because different from, say, alcohol or beer or winemakers, these aren't necessarily going to be companies that are specific to that. You're not a craft brewery, you're not a distillery, you're not a winery. You're, you're much more likely to have companies that have the infrastructure to make food products, whether it's breakfast cereal or, or gummy bears, then extend their line by including a cannabis product. So they will have different types of brand risk yes. than someone, than someone who's been in the alcohol business all along and produces a new beer, for example, they know what they're getting into, the expectations are consistent, yes. and and there aren't these uncertainties as you've raised relative to to dosage and experience. Yeah, and, and that's another factor too, is is just like you said with beer, you know, expanding into a new product is likely still another beer or a form of alcohol. You have a lot of experience in that mm -hmm. market with the pros and cons. With this, you know, you may have a firm that has almost no information, no idea. And they're also not really engaging in the, well, they're unlikely to engage in the actual production of cannabis or extraction. They're likely to purchase it as an input, you know, yeah. pre-extracted, and all they're doing is adding it to a 
predefined recipe may need some small Just like they're buying other ingredients. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say, you know, uh, an existing food company deciding to create a cannabis-infused line is not too different than them trying to maybe create an organic line or mm. a, you know, a, a, a type of food that maybe has higher protein or that's really all they're doing. It's a small change in, in recipe uh, with a large impact on the final product, but only from, you know, the impact it has on you. That's interesting. And that's true for either food or beverage companies, right? Absolutely. Because it's, it's going to be existing companies in all likelihood. Or maybe we'll see some specialized companies mm-hmm. just if the existing companies are, are worried about the risk, you might get some people who just say, well, we're going to be a cannabis food or cannabis candy or whatever company, and then maybe extend their lines into non-cannabis as they grow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out, because when we think of the case of the United States... Because it's only been legalized on a state level and federally it's remained illegal, this has basically precluded any large corporation from considering to actually create a cannabis product line and invest in it in any real way because they'd be breaking federal law. In Canada, that won't be a reality anymore. We could have a Pepsi Co. or a, you know any, any company really for that matter, Subway, someone could create a cannabis product line without breaking any laws, you know, and so that I think changes the landscape, but it doesn't eliminate the risk to your brand and and other factors that may still limit their willingness to jump in. What's interesting, and I hadn't really thought about this before, is it's also going to be a different supply chain. So so if you are a snack manufacturer, as an example, Mm -hmm. you have a an existing distribution network that goes to grocery stores to convenience stores to other things that until we know where these products will be sold these will be a different set of criteria a different Mm -hmm. set of distribution partners that may also cause some bumps in the road yeah i mean i I, similarly uh, i saw a sort of discussion online the other day where they made the point that with north american trade we have a lot of products that back and forth back and forth across the borders i mean this is especially true in the automotive industry but it happens in the food industry as well. Huge no, huge volumes of beef, pork, exactly. and other products are going both directions. And so this was one thing that was brought up in uh, an article I recently read was, well, if we're, at what stage do we add the cannabis? And for a company that may have activities that cross the border back and forth, they now need to create a completely separate sort of value chain because it can't cross the border anymore. Yeah. And so that's another reason you may see some of these really large corporations decide against it. And if they do, they may end up opening sort of separate uh, wings or, you know, a separate numbered company to sort of run this. And I think put different people in charge that will develop those value chains and supply chains because it really is, uh, there's not a lot of similarities to what they've been doing traditionally. Do, do we have any sense of when the federal government is going to be ready to sort of open the, the edibles market? Yeah, so they said within one year of legalization, October 17th. So, you know, we'd hope by next October, the, the, the original sort of timeline was that by the beginning of this summer, we should hopefully have draft regulations out uh, with the intent to allow firms to start to make investments and start entering with some level of certainty. Because the idea that we wait till you know, next October and they say, oh, here's the regulations and it's legal now, (laughs) you know, they need some time delay. Um, 
we'll see what happens. I mean, I think with obviously with the initial legalization, the date was pushed several times. It ended up being about four months later than they said it would. I wouldn't be surprised to see that happening. The one thing I think that may change the federal government's calculus a little bit here is the continued success of the black market sellers in Canada and the increasing availability of sort of manufactured cannabis products, particularly edibles, in these black markets. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a report just came out today that a, a judge in Vancouver is going to force about 30 or 40 illegal black market cannabis stores that are operating without business licenses in downtown Vancouver to close down. And so that's a big deal. Uh, the police and everyone in British Columbia has sort of been holding their breath of what's going to happen with these stores. R related to... Companies that are, I'm, I'm not no. trying to put words in your mouth, but, but related to companies or, or even the underground that might produce edibles as a way That's of right. differentiating themselves in yeah. the market. So if, if there's no legal edibles and there is this pent up demand yes. for edibles, that might be a way for the illegal market to maintain share exactly. by offering products that are not, not available in the mainstream yet. Yeah, and so we're seeing that right now, that even as these dispensaries, these illegal you know, cannabis stores are being shut, at the same time, there's an increasing number of online stores. Yeah. Uh, and I won't list their specific <laughs> URLs to uh, avoid giving them any free publicity, yeah. but there's, there's, there's hundreds. Of, yeah. you know, and you type in a couple of keywords, and you'll see any number of sites online that are willing to sell you a litany of black market cannabis products. And when we're talking about edibles, you know, whether they're gummies or chocolates, the vast majority of these products are not, you know, coming in a Ziploc bag like someone made them in their kitchen. These are mass-produced, highly sort of repeatable, homogenous food products. They're being made by firms. They're being mass-produced, and they're being largely produced for medical consumers but clearly there's seepage out of that medical market into the black market. Uh, and so, as I was saying before, I think the government would be wise to realize that these black market sellers are surviving right now on the fact that they can offer a product that the government stores can't. Yeah. When that advantage is taken away, I think you'll see the black market really struggle. And so I could see that maybe pushing the government's date or at least mm. putting some fire on them to, okay, we, got, we can't keep delaying. But we're not sure. Uh, you know, right now, October 17th is the date, but that may change. My, ne my next question, and I'm finding this a fascinating conversation, my next question relates to, you know, I've, I've spoken to people who say, well, it's, it's not about getting high. It's CBD and sort of the non-intoxicating yeah. elements of cannabis that, that have appeal for a lot of people. Pain, mm -hmm. anxiety, appetite, all of those sorts yeah. of things. How are we sort of navigating the, the, you know, as I understand it here in Ontario, the cannabis store will offer you sort of an analysis and say, here's stuff that's yes. mostly CBD and here's stuff that's mostly THC and here's stuff that's a, co a combination of, of, of the two. But yeah, what's that dynamic going to look like? So just for those that aren't fully aware, the basic idea is there, there's a, a list of active psychoactive compounds yeah. in cannabis. The two main that we're most interested in are THC, which is the compound that we classically associate with being high, with yeah. intoxication. Whereas there's the CBD, which is the other most important and most prevalent active compound in cannabis, and there is no psychoactive effect to mm -hmm. CBD. It is the compound that anecdotally people have said has benefits for pain and sleeping and nausea and things. 
Uh, and there has actually been some medical studies that have found its effectiveness for reducing certain kinds of seizures and different mm -hmm. uh, things. And there's, they're going through trials right now for pain and different medicines. The, the interesting thing with the CBD product is that because it's non-intoxicating, there isn't such a, a barrier. There's not really any barrier to use. And so what we've seen in the States and we're even beginning to see in Canada is that the willingness to consume CBD is much wider than the willingness to consume THC or yeah. cannabis. And so I think we're going to see a lot of products willing to add that in. And it's a less risky sort of exercise than trying to add THC. And so currently, I mean, we see people that are selling strictly just CBD drops as mm -hmm. like, and it's a CBD can be extracted from hemp. It doesn't have to come from strictly cannabis. And so that's why it's existed prior to legalization. The interesting thing now is that the price of CBD sort of per milligram is likely to plummet because now that there's a legal market for cannabis, you can extract CBD from the non sort of uh, non psychoactive leaves on the cannabis tree. Previously, most of that would be thrown away. Now it will be used for CBD. So it's essentially a byproduct or economic yeah. economics of scope. Yeah, right? you can see. exactly. And so I think producers, yeah. we're going to see that being put a lot of places. And I mean, th there's the medical side, but this is a bit of a gray area with cannabis where things like CBD and even just cannabis, people see the medical benefits to it. But that isn't just for medical consumers. And I think that's something, especially from the food industry standpoint and the consumption of even just CBD, you know, offering a product that people are self-medicating with, companies have to decide where they stand on that. Mm -hmm. THC obviously is a different question. It's it's a psychoactive compound. It's, you know, some people, most people would put it online with, you know, self-medicating with alcohol or something, not necessarily something we want to promote. CBD is not psychoactive, so it doesn't have that same similarity to alcohol. But we're still encouraging people to take it as sort of a multivitamin and things like that. And for a company that maybe traditionally sold chips or drinks or things, that's not a product they've traditionally sold. And so it'll be interesting if maybe more of the health food supplement companies take on CBD or if it becomes more of a food additive. Yeah. And we haven't really seen which way that's going to go yet. Um, they're sort of both available in the States. But some, some estimates have been that the CBD market will surpass the psychoactive THC market over the long run. Yeah, so 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 it could be supplements. You know, you, you take your cod liver oil or, exactly. or whatever and you take your CBD and exactly. for joints or yeah pardon the pun of course <laughs> <laughs> but but for or, or whatever or it could be something we see in breakfast cereal sort of yeah. a daily dose kind of supplement kind yeah of there's one in the states there's a company I can't remember off the top of my head but they provide a, a cold brew coffee and so they started as a medical company which I think is a, a classic <laughs> route into this industry for food manufacturers and things is that the medical industry, the medical route is maybe a little bit more, it's long, it's more established. Yeah. We know the rules more. Edibles are already legal underneath the medical system. And so I think in the States, we've seen a lot of companies go the medical route with THC and CBD based products. And so this company started with cold brew coffee with THC and CBD for, you know, cancer patients and yeah. different people. And now they've actually offered a product where they've pulled out the THC and it's just a CBD. And it's a morning cup of cold coffee you would drink any day of the week. And the idea is you're on your way to work and you grab that just like you would grab your Starbucks. And they're trying hard not, not to separate that, to keep that as sort of a food-based product that any citizen would consume. 
And so I think it'll be interesting how society accepts that, you know, is that are we are we medicating ourselves or is that just sort of a multivitamin that we're adding in? You know, what? how do we treat that? And before we move on from CBD, that begs the question then, is CBD regulated under the current law or not really? And in fact, uh, this is an interesting question because in the last uh, sort of maybe six, eight months prior to legalization, I started seeing CBD oils uh, sold everywhere and Mm. classically in corner stores, in in sort of mom and pop private corner stores, they were selling CBD oil, which according to the government was, I believe it was considered legal to sell. But if we were, if anyone was consuming that as sort of an additive, as as oil, as a CBD oil, then kind of you were breaking the rule. It was sort of a gray area. It could be sold, but you can't, used. you can't really use it. Yeah, you want to drip it on your food or something as yeah. some other reason, maybe, or like wipe it on your hands as a hand oil, I guess. Yeah. But it's no good to be used as a substance, um, yeah. as a you know an intoxicating yeah. or non-intoxicating substance. A lot of that's been removed now. Yeah. I don't think by any specific direction from the federal government, more based on concerns mm. that they were going to sort of be out of line of the federal uh, legislation. The trouble is right now is that Anyone can produce CBD because it's non-intoxicating. The government really has not focused on it to the same as THC. A recent report just came out actually that said that a huge amount of the, they said cannabis oil in general, CBD and THC on the market in Canada is likely not as effective as it should be because it's being done improperly. And there's a process you have to go through to pull out the THC of the CBD called, I believe it's decarbolization. And uh, it's sort of a, you have to heat it to a certain degree without overheating it. Yeah. And because otherwise the, the active ingredients are not consumable by okay. us, it has to be heated. And so they've already said that because the CBD market is so unregulated, they might just be basically selling you coconut oil, mm-hmm. right? With sure, some, some cannabis leaves were, you know, passed I through it. But waved in its general yeah, direction. But, they, but it doesn't. <laughs> and, and the trouble is, is, you know, with a THC product, you're going to consume it and know right away that, oh, this was what I expected. CBD is... It's a it's a subtle effect, and even the effects that have been you know anecdotally argued or medically argued, it's a it's an over time thing. It's yeah. not oh I take a drip of CBD and I feel this or I feel that. So you go spend fifty sixty dollars on a vial of oil, and you find out a month later nothing's happened, and you're just taking coconut oil. Yeah. So and so it's going to be it's going to be a big deal if and only if they start making specific medical claims. And yes. Then, and then then it becomes a functional food product. Or a, or a functional supplement where they say, take this to get this benefit. Yes. Then there's a regulatory framework. But if they're just saying, here's some CBD oil. There doesn't seem to be. Yeah. And, and, and at the very least, it's a let's not worry about it. You know, bigger fish to fry, that yeah. kind of a thing. So, and again, we'll see how that changes over time. You know, it, all it takes is one bad story. Yeah. And they may decide to push those regulations. But at this current time, THC is is being fairly regulated, CBD is very much still the Wild West and sort of existing in a vacuum. That's interesting. The next topic I'd like to cover before we, before we wrap up is relates to restaurants. Okay. You know, I've talked to some restaurateurs who said, we're a little bit nervous about this. People were a smoke-free environment. So even if you can consume smoke or edibles somewhere else out in public, you can't do it in, in a restaurant. We can't currently serve it. Mm-hmm. Are people going to stay home? Are they going to order out? Or they, you know, are is it going to affect the restaurant business? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. And eventually, the questions arise: Will we see cannabis license, much as 
like we see liquor licenses, yes. will they be able to serve? What are their liability issues relative to some of the the uncertainties around edibles and intoxication that you already raised? Yeah. This is sort of, to me, a profoundly important gray area that, that, that I haven't heard a lot of discussion except some individual discussions I've had with restaurateurs. Yeah, no, I think the restaurant issue has really been left out of the discussion so far. I think it, part of that is maybe due to the fact that edibles aren't legal yet, so people haven't concerned themselves too, too much. But also, I think, like you said, it's maybe, it's not an issue maybe most people think about. You know, it, like for a restaurant, for someone that owns a restaurant, this is a real issue. Yeah. This is potentially keeping them up at night, yeah. for better or for worse. But the rest of us, maybe that's an afterthought. And I think it is going to be a big issue. Uh, as we talked about before, there's a lot of uncertainty around the regulations that are going to be coming out. So we don't even know what kinds of products or if any products will be allowed to be consumed in a restaurant setting. Right. Um, there's the issue. We think back several years ago where lots of bars, children weren't allowed in them. Is that going to be the new norm that, you know, only restaurants, places that can serve cannabis products can't have children in them? As you said before, there's the smoking issue. We've seen a lot of beer and beverage companies start investing in cannabis companies. I know that I believe Molson is in the works to make a drinkable, non-alcoholic cannabis based beer. But then there's the question of how do those two mix in a restaurant setting? You know, are beer drinkers sort of the same as cannabis users or drinkers, however you want to term that? And I think the interesting issue here is that if you own a restaurant, sure, this is an opportunity that maybe you can take advantage of. But if you sit this out, it's a risk. Yeah. It's not just, oh, I'm avoiding that opportunity, no, no big deal. But we could see a place where we see a separation between the, the restaurants that offer this and are willing to offer this and don't. Yeah. And similar to alcohol now, some families, you know, go for a, a Sunday dinner, won't consider a restaurant that maybe they can't have a beer with, yeah. right? And we may see a similar movement and, you know, with groups of friends of, you know, oh, well, we don't really drink, we'd rather consume cannabis and so I don't want to go to that restaurant we'll go to this one and I think that's going to be a a big issue that's interesting because you know we're seeing evidence now that restaurants that offer a vegetarian option or an increasing number or or a number of viable vegetarian options bring groups in because even if there's only one vegetarian in the group you look for a place so even if there's only one cannabis user in the group you might look for the restaurant that these three people want to have a glass of wine with dinner, but this person wants to have a, a pre-dinner amuse-bouche to uh, enhance their appetite, and or someone might want to have dessert. It's it's yeah, it, it could and, really be an interesting. And there's costs to offering it, and I think I I would compare it to sort of like the gluten-free thing where. To truly offer like a celiac friendly menu, you almost need like a separate kitchen or a separate wing of the kitchen. You know, the yeah. cutting boards are separate, the knives, everything. And it's sort of similar with cannabis. You know, if I'm, especially if I'm an inexperienced user and I'm consuming in a restaurant, I want to know that they're going to do the right thing, yeah. that they're not going to double my dosage, that they're not going to put it in my wife's sandwich, not my sandwich. But, you know, I want to know what's coming at me. And, and I think with that, from a restaurant standpoint, that's training to staff, that's potentially, you know, equipment you know maybe you need different baking sheets and things because you don't want to bake the cannabis infused things on the same one as the non-cannabis infused right and i mean so we have this issue where yeah they're going to want to offer it to make sure that they don't lose market share to the other places that are offering it but that's not a costless decision and so you know it's going to be interesting and regulations i think will really determine those costs because back to the issue of dosing 
you know, having an overdosage, you know, and having a, feeling sick or having nausea or something in your own house is one problem. Having that in a restaurant setting is a very different problem. We don't want customers having to lie down. Or... Exactly. And, and there's, you know, and there's the, the, it causes a scene, there's a liability issue, there's all these things. And so, you know, that's going to be another big issue going forward is, is if you offer it, what are the guidelines of how you offer it? And it's really, you know, it's a risk, it's an opportunity. That whole issue of intoxication has never occurred to me before now, but you could have someone who comes into a a restaurant or a bar for that matter, mm-hmm. having consumed edibles and yes. not be visibly intoxicated. Absolutely. You serve them alcohol. Yes. And it become and, yes. and they become profoundly intoxicated. Yes. And there was no way for you to know Yes. No matter how good your training is, that lag between between consumption and intoxication. Not to mention the fact that you it's easier to uh, hide, uh, like if you're going into a venue or yeah. a concert or something like that. It, it's maybe hard to bring in a flask or a case of beer, but yeah. a couple of gummies in the bottom of your bag or someone's probably not going to notice that. It's very indist- you know, undetectable. It's not like you're smoking or yeah. anything like that. And so that's a factor too. I mean, we also don't know in terms of edibles and especially restaurants, uh, the government has indicated a little bit of hesitation with allowing the mixing of the two substances. Yeah. So I know that originally people had talked about having like a cannabis infused beer. So an alcoholic based beer, but it's got THC and or CBD in it. And I think early indications of the government really don't like that idea. Yeah. They really don't want to mix these things, right? But then if there's a consumer demand, they're going to find ways around this, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, it's a whole other issue, right? Trying to weed out overly intoxicated people in the lineup at a bar becomes a much more difficult experience now. Because they just ate a gummy bear, you can't tell. Their breath doesn't smell. Yeah. Their eyes aren't red. Nothing changes except for they just ate a candy in front of you or yeah. before they saw you. Yeah, it'll be an interesting challenge yes. in food service yes. over time. You know, again, just like processing, mm-hmm. where historically we've had the bar in the restaurant that mixed the drinks and the kitchen that did the food. Yes, we're now going to have. A little bit together. We're going to have a little bit together, and, and, and that will be an interesting challenge, too. I think, I'm, I'm back to my last question, and this is one I, I hadn't anticipated asking, but your introduction, you, you talked about tourism. Yes. In the big picture of cannabis, we could definitely see, much like casinos and mm-hmm. across jurisdictions, we could probably see some cannabis tourism. Absolutely. And with edibles, we could probably see some culinary tourism where where people are coming to say yeah. i want this i want this experience mm-hmm. is there evidence in those states that have legalized that, that this is happening yeah so uh tourism and sort of dining experiences in the states uh within the the subset of, of edible cannabis products that is the fastest growing sort of subset or sub area and what we've seen uh nothing in canada yet nothing legal in canada yet obviously because edibles aren't allowed but in the states we've seen everything from sort of elite high-end fine dining experiences where they would be often private rooms you know five to ten people and you're having sort of you know michelin star type dishes that each are are purposely paired with different kinds of of cannabis edibles and different infusions and things like that and that has become a very popular activity but beyond just that there's actually also sort of location specific 
tourism. And so there's people wanting to go to farms and see how it's grown and, and, and you really just engage in the process. Because with beer, again, almost all of us in North America, we've grown up around alcohol, maybe had a friend that makes it at home, or we've been to breweries. We, we understand the general process. For a big proportion of the population, cannabis is a black hole still. Yeah. We don't know what it is. We don't know how it works. We don't know how they make it. And so the activity of going and actually you know, seeing the plant and seeing how it's processed and seeing how they make the edibles, that will be a big area. Uh, I can't remember the, the, the city or the town off the top of my head, but there was a small uh, town in Canada that would basically become a, a ghost town and it was drying up. Mm. And I think they used to own some kind of uh, food packing plant or something. Well, a cannabis company bought the, all the main buildings in the town and have basically bought almost the entire town now. And I think it's something like seven out of 10 jobs in the town are in cannabis, whether that's, you know, trimming and producing and things. But they're also sort of ramping up now for the true legalization that's occurring. And they are having cannabis-based hotels where, you know, there's places to smoke and you're welcome to smoke in the can in the store. And there's restaurants that are focused on cannabis. And you can go, you know, to to the, the, the local comedy club does comedy that's about yeah. cannabis. And just the whole town, and, that's, and they say it's been a renaissance for their town. Yeah. And all of a sudden they've gone from, you know, everyone was getting ready to move and the jobs were disappearing to now they're, you know, they're climbing again and they're growing. And so there seems to be a lot of interest in that kind of tourism as well. Of really almost like you'd think of going to like an old West town, you know, yeah. in like Montana or Idaho or something like that. This would be the same idea, you know, you want to go to the cannabis town. Mm-hmm. And so I think we'll see that as well um, growing, especially once uh, edibles are legal. The other thing that we've seen is not exactly tourism, but is classes. So classes on cooking with cannabis, because currently, while you can't purchase edibles, you are allowed to manufacture them yeah. yourself. You just yeah. can't sell them. And so there's been a growth in courses, and they've kind of made it sort of a tourism experience. You know, you come in, they they show you how it's all made, they show how you grow it, they, you know, they help you convert it into an oil or a butter so it can be used in cooking, and then you eat, and it's a whole kind of, you know, night out on the town experience. Yeah. Similar if you were going to maybe go learn how to cook Thai food or Indian food with your wife or something like that. And so I think that, you know, there's all these little opportunities. People are, are interested, you yeah. know. It's, it's almost like going out for dinner and going to a museum in one. You know, you learn and have an experience. Yeah. And I think people, I think, are, are eager for that. There's a hunger. It's interesting. And I read the other day that California producers are trying to brand... Yes. Their cannabis. Terroir. So, so the terroir of cannabis. Yes. Maybe. Now, my guess is that that's going to be less significant in Canada because we're growing it in high security greenhouses and it's going to be hard to argue that this is, you know, Ontario gold and it's different because the soil and the climate and they're in climate controlled. But I, this is an interesting one because I think, you know, still the vast majority of cannabis grown in California is indoors as well. Yeah. Very little outdoor. I think uh, in Canada, we just had the first federal uh, license granted for an outdoor grow up of some variety. So the differentiation or the terroir might be less about location I than variety. Yes. And so, and that's, and I, and I had talked with others about this and had argued for this sort of uh, maybe a year ago that if, you know, Canada and the government really should put some effort into this. We are effectively the first mover here. You know, Uruguay legalized prior to us, but they don't have the level of use or development of the market that we have or likely ever will. And so we're the first mover. We have the advantage that we have a legal system we can operate within. And we have a long history of cannabis use and consumption socially in the 
country. And if you look at a lot of the uh, varieties that are quite popular and common, I mean, there's names such as BC Big Bud and Northern Lights and things like that. Those are distinctively Canadian varieties, right? We can compare them to things like, or Kootenai Gold is another British Columbian brand. You can compare that to things like Columbia Gold, which is or Acapulco Gold, which are Mexican varieties, right. and they have a long history. And so there's been an argument by some in the cannabis market and the industry that, you know, Canada should really lay claim to the varieties that their citizens created, yeah. right? The trouble is, is that these weren't created in labs. They were created <laughs> in some guy named Jimbo's basement, yeah. and we don't know, and it's really hard to understand, is this truly Northern Lights number four versus this, because we haven't totally nailed down the DNA and the genetics. So that will come, but I think any money the government spends or businesses spend towards pushing some kind of terroir for varieties or for cannabis in Canada, I think it'll come back to them tenfold because yeah. I think there's an opportunity it's about here. creating brand loyalty. Exactly. And I think we're just, already just seeing like, this. Just like we do with beer or wine, with we anything. all have our favorites. Yeah. And we're already seeing this with um, Willie Nelson, Snoop Dogg. They both have their own varieties <laughs> that they are exclusively sell in Canada because yeah. they're worried about it attraction in the, in the States. But, uh, you know, that's not terroir. It's it's name, you know, yeah. uh, association. It's it's but branding. it's still, I mean, there's there's a market there. People want recognition. They want to know, oh, this is, you know, this variety. I know it'll give me these effects. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, there's, there's grounds for us to really make that Canadian. And it's, I think with, uh, sorry, just to add on, there's a new opportunity for exports as well. I and mean, we've already seen this. Uh, Canada has already begun exporting to Germany, I think the Netherlands. Uh, there's a few Latin American countries that we've been exporting to. And I think that's where things like terroir can really hold some value. Because, you know, saying, oh, BC cannabis to maybe Ontario, they might not be as concerned about that. But selling BC cannabis to Germany or Australia, that might hold some more value. And I think, you know, that quality message. Exactly. Well, and and one of the things um, that I found that's been an interesting development of the legalization is some of the research that's coming out, we're having a better understanding of the different compounds that are in cannabis. And uh, one of the things we've identified is called terpenes. And terpenes are effectively like an essential oil, Mm -hmm. and that contains different flavor profiles. And so what they seem to have discovered now is that there are I don't know how many, but it seems to be maybe in the neighborhood of under 20, but I might be off on that, Uh, around 20 or so terpenes. And this one, you know, terpene 1243 or something has a piney profile, and this one has a citrusy profile. And so one of the things I think with really trying to capitalize on the names is you might say, okay, this is, you know, Canadian Northern Lights number three, and it's got this terpene, this terpene, this terpene, which gives this flavor profile which then when goes into this edible, we can bring out. And so it has, it's not just... We're going to have tastings. And that's the thing is it's not just a a psychoactive compound difference. It's a flavor. And so I think that's, you know, and that's what you get with wine is, oh, well, this, you know, is grown in this soil. So that's why we call it this and pay for this. And I think it's not the same, but I think there's a parallel with cannabis there Mm -hmm. that there's enough information that we can create uniqueness in products and maybe capitalize on the fact that, you know, we started some of this. Well, I, I really enjoyed this conversation yeah, and I, as well. I learned, I actually learned a few things and I think it's going to be exciting as an observer to watch how Absolutely. this market develops. Before we wrap up, yeah. is there anything that you thought, well, Mike is going to ask me about this and I haven't? Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd sort of like to 
sort of make sure that people are thinking about, or, or have we covered it? I don't think so. I think you've, you've done a pretty good job, and, and we've sort of covered the bases. And, and, you know, the main thing here is, we don't know. A lot of this is is best guesses and based right. on what's happened in America. And the biggest thing I would say, whether you're a consumer or a producer or just an observer, be, be flexible, be aware that things are changing, it's in flux, and this is a brand new experience. I mean, I've seen a lot of people compare this to, oh, the ending of Prohibition, but it's nothing like that. I mean, Prohibition was a short-term thing, and we had existing prices and consumer dynamics to understand afterwards. We don't know any of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think whether we're talking about edibles specifically or cannabis as the whole market, uh, this is exciting times. And I think, you know, that's the, it's, for me, that's the main thing that keeps me interested in this is this is new and, and volatile. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you very much. Thanks thank for you. sharing and uh, look forward to talking about it again. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that was our uh, episode on cannabis cannabis edibles specifically. Thanks, Liam, for the conversation. I'd like to thank Molly Gallant for producing the podcast and Zachary Von Masso for the music that breaks up the introduction and in the actual discussion. And I encourage you, if you're interested, to look up some of our other episodes. Stay in touch. You can find them at foodfocusedwealth.ca, which is a, a website that includes not only the podcast, but a blog and other Topics of interest in food. You can pick up other episodes of the podcast there, as well as iTunes and other places that you find podcasts. I hope you will come back and listen again.